Hello, Brain Allies. You're listening to Brains Out Loud, where we talk about important topics surrounding mental health, from our personal life to our work life and everywhere in between. Our goal is that through these conversations, we can help break the stigma and encourage our listeners to prioritize mental health on equivalent level to physical health. This is your co-host, Juliette Mesker speaking. And today we are here with Sika Brown, Sika is a 20-year-old researcher and advocate for mental health. When she was 15 years old, she founded her first nonprofit organization that focused on mental health policy change. Her team was able to successfully pass their first bill in 2019. She now sits as the CEO of the YLG Research Initiative, researching how mental health is defined across cultures and backgrounds. Seika works alongside significant institutions and organizations like the Karolinska Institute, Johns Hopkins University, Rare Beauty, Cities Rise, and Mental Health America. Thank you so much, Seika, for being here with us today. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So one of the first questions I have for you is you founded this nonprofit when you were 15 and your nonprofit organization ended up passing a bill in 2019. Can you tell us a little bit more about that bill? Yeah, so we actually worked in three legislation sessions, one every single year from sophomore year of high school to senior year of high school. And we worked pretty hands-on with two bills. Like the first legislation session was kind of like us getting to know what the process looks like like we always took those history classes that like kind of like sang us those songs about like oh this is how you pass a bill but I never really understood so the first session was kind of just learning how that works and then the second uh session that we worked on the first bill that we worked on was specifically around suicide prevention um and we worked with the University of Washington we worked with a lot of suicide prevention companies um and sadly the issue with that bill was mainly just money um, it was just at the end of the day, it can be really expensive, especially in like 20s, I guess I'll be like 2018, especially back then, like it was difficult to get funding for that. And specifically for suicide prevention and then coming into 2019, when we were working on this last bill, it was kind of like a mix of not just suicide prevention, but mental health and the kind of things that fall underneath the mental health umbrella. So we had a lot about counseling. We had a lot about like health education in this bill, we had a lot about just how can like, how can we make the school environment better for students and in default, right? How does that affect their mental health? And so another thing that was really cool that we added in this bill that we passed was having these student well-being centers. And it's an interesting term because what it really is is having student representatives from each school district working really hands-on with their state legislators and representatives. So, so if a certain district is struggling, let's say in food or in technology, they are able to directly contact the people that could help them and get assistance in areas where they need more support. So especially during COVID the next year, it was a great assistance in terms of struggling cities, struggling um, districts within Washington state, and just kind of getting them the overall resources they need and in, in, in default uh, helping their mental health. That's truly incredible. Congratulations for being able to accomplish that. And especially at such a young age, um, was it you. difficult to have people take you seriously when you were young? I know 
that being a young founder myself, I've had a lot of difficulty with ageism and people kind of not taking me as seriously because I'm on the younger side. And I was wondering if you were 15, did people see your passion and, and trust your ability to get something like this passed or was there, um, was it difficult to kind of uh, break the door down? Yeah, I'm laughing because like, that's when like, I have the exact same experience. Like when I started at 15, I basically emailed every single state legislator and senator in Washington state. And I, I sent them all like an individualized email because I thought that would really make a difference. And, mm. and I only got one reply. Um, of course, like these legislators and uh, senators are like the mo- probably the most busy people in the state. But um, a lot of the responses I got were either like, yeah, good luck or no response at all. Or some people will be like, oh, okay, like this is super cool. Like, you know, talk to us in a few years. Um, right. And so it was very difficult to get people one to respond in the beginning. And then once we got the first response, it was super exciting because this legislator that I worked with, her name is Tina Orwell. She she kind of saw the passion. Because at 15, I definitely didn't have like the vocabulary or just like the speech etiquette to talk in, in front in front of such a large audience. Like I was definitely a 15 year old. Like I wasn't one of those 15 year olds that I was like ahead of her time. Like I was struggling, <laughs> like I was struggling in my English classes, you know, like I was, I was a sophomore in high school. Like I just went into right. my freshman year. Like th- this girl, like this woman who really like saw the passion in me, I think was really sweet because I think even though I didn't have like the technical, like the technical skills for it, I think she saw that, okay, this is a young person that's wanting to be in this field. And I think that was really sweet. But then of course, like carrying into the legislation sessions when we're you know, sharing our testimonies, when we're working with the state departments, like, oh no, this should be in the bill. They were like, okay, why are we having like this group of 15 year olds at this table right now <laughs> telling us what to do? And I'm like, good question. But I mean, at the end of the day, if you're gonna work, especially in adolescent mental health, like the number one people you need to listen to is adolescents. And I think that's why the bill has been so successful. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so interesting because now with TikTok, I'm seeing mm-hmm. lots of Gen Z uh, coming out and speaking out about politics. And I just saw this amazing speech that a 12-year-old gave recently on, um, she was 12 or 13, she was in middle school mm-hmm. on wow. gun violence. And I was blown away by her speaking skills. And I was like, I never could have made a speech like that so young do you feel like going through this process and working with legislators and pushing for something so substantial it kind of elevated your skills your public speaking skills your vocabulary and kind of escalated you in terms of like your maturity and your age and what your capabilities would uh what capabilities would follow yeah definitely i think i've I think a lot of like, exactly, like a lot of young kids, they shouldn't be underestimated. Like these, especially like the next generation, like the like the younger kids below us, like I was talking to a bunch of like eighth graders the other day and I'm like, how are you in eighth grade? Like, this is crazy. Like you're, like you're doing such amazing things. Like I definitely think that at a young age, like though maybe I didn't have the specific like skills that you would like see on like a LinkedIn post right like oh like I'm I'm a well-known like public speaker like I definitely wasn't good at like public speaking or getting my point across quickly like but I think when you know this uh, state legislator Tina Orwell like saw kind of that passion 
in me. I think she kind of trained me in some sense and just like, okay, this is, this is what, what do you really want to say? Like, if you only had one minute, like to talk to, you know, the governor, what would you say? And I think that was like one of the questions she's asked me once. And I was like, oh, that's a good question. Cause like, what would I say in one minute, one minute? So I think in, in deep, like, just like by practicing and just by discipline of like, okay, this is something I love. This is something I care about. And I want to do this and I want to help people that, you know, have experienced the similar things that I've experienced. I think I've quickly learned how to take that passion and then put it into, into words and put that into action. So I think by the time I graduated high school in 2020, I was a lot further in my, I guess, like leadership capabilities too. I, I definitely felt like I've grown so much just between 15 and 18. And then looking back just like two years ago, now I'm like, wow, like it's, it's a constant growth. And I love that because it's just so exciting. It is. It's really exciting to see the progress that you've made and to be able to make those comparisons. Um, I, I know when I first started public speaking and first started pitching and doing sales pitches mm. for my company and our services, I, my speeches were so long and mm-hmm. I was so bad at staying concise. And so it's definitely a skill that needs to be mastered. And so um, I'm really impressed by the fact that you learned that so early on and what inspired you to get involved in the mental health space and to push this bill? Yeah, I think there's like two specific specific marks of inspiration. Like one, when I was eight years old, my brother, he's four years older than I am, attempted suicide. And while like that is like, it was a very difficult thing for both me and my family. And of course my brother, like I, you know, I was eight years old when I watched him kind of go through that healing process, right? Like I was eight, I was pretty young and Yes, it was like traumatic by any means, but being able to watch my older brother kind of go to therapy and like kind of see this conversation start, right? Um, that was it really, I think that was like the good, that was like the silver lining in that experience is that like, even though we struggled at a young age, my brother and I quickly learned that, you know, talking about your mental health is okay, that there's, you know, solutions to how to help your mental health. There's there's things around the mental health realm and I was so engaged into it at such a young age. I don't think I realized that. And then when I came to high school, you know, I saw a lot of my friends like struggle, you know, this this is the age where you're developing so quickly. And this is the age where you're challenging yourself more than you realize. And I saw a lot of my friends be stressed and anxious. And I was like, wow, like this, this is kind of like, you know, that this is what my brother was experiencing. This is what I was experiencing. And I didn't even know what this was called. Right. And so once I took my first like health classes in like seventh and like 10th grade, I was like, wow, like oh, this is, that's the term, like, oh, the term's mental health. And I was like, wow, like, why did it take me 10, you know, a few years down the line after my release attempt to really put words to um, the experience? And I think that lack of education, even though I was growing up in that, you know, area of like, okay, this is okay, but what is this? Like, what is this term that we're talking about? Learning that down the line, I was like, okay, obviously this is something that we need to put a word on at a, at a young age when a lot of kids are experiencing it. And so I think when I started my organization at 15, it was mainly around awareness and resource because, okay, because I wanted to make sure that people knew that this was a real experience. This was a shared experience, but there's also resources there to help you. It's amazing. It's a very advanced conclusion and initiative for you to create at such a young age. And now you serve as the CEO of the YLG Research Initiative and why are you the founder of that organization as well? I am, yes. So what inspired you to found the YLG Research Initiative? 
So I, I love it so much. Like I'm having so much fun with it. And so YLG is youth lead global and then research. So um, I, at the end of high school, it was 2020 during COVID. And I was kind of like, I was getting ready to go my freshman year of university. And I was moving all across the country to New York. And I was like, okay, like I was looking at my nonprofit that I had for the past three years. And I was like, my friend is going to the Navy. Like I have friends that are like going all across the country for university. And I'm like, it doesn't make sense to me when we had so much success in this organization and we had such a great time, it did not make sense to me to try and continue it into university. Cause I was like, this is the end, right? Like this was kind of just like that perfect, you know, close of the book. Like this was the chapter. And then I was thinking though, it's like, of course I want to continue this mental health work. Of course I want to stay working in mental health. And I was working with a mental health company called Cities Rise. And they invited me on a panel back in October of 2020 um, with the ex-chief of health of the United Nations. Um, and it was like a super cool opportunity online. And it was me and a bunch of other young leaders um, from all across the world. And we were just talking about what mental health meant to us. And it was that conversation that day that really made me think about the background that I come from. Um, I'm half Japanese and I'm half English. My mom was born and raised in Japan. My dad was born and raised in England. And here I am in America. Like <laughs> I come from a lot of different backgrounds. And even though like right, the UK and, and the US have a lot of similarities, there is some differences just in, in terms of like family traditions and family culture. And then of course, um, being Japanese, like I kind of, I feel like I grew up in a very Japanese household. Uh, we celebrate Japanese holidays. My name's Japanese. We, I went to Japan like every single year, like I, I very much identify with that part of my culture. And so I was like, you know what, like part of my mental health journey was taking the time to understand my mom's culture and kind of the politics and the history in which that she grew up in and that my family grew up in. Um, and then I realized that, okay, like the US is so advanced in mental health care, but at the same time, we're so not advanced in mental health care. Right. And then <laughs> I started thinking about my mom and my friends from, you know, from that conversation, I was like, okay, like there is so much cultural influence and personal experience that influences how we think about mental health and how we talk about mental health. And so when I started the YLG research project, I was like, I want to explore how different cultures talk about it. Cause that conversation, we had people from like Colombia and Kenya and India and the US talking about mental health. And that was so exciting. And so I kind of took that cultural lens and put that onto mental health. And so while I do a research project, a lot of what it is, is like talking to people from different cultures that are interested in mental health and then helping them have conversations within their own cities and within their own countries around mental health. And so a lot of what I'm able to do with the YLG research project is like training other young people within their own cultures and within their own atmosphere of like, this is how you can talk about mental health in the way that is fitting to you, your country and your culture. And so it's a bunch of young leaders, in my opinion, that are just leading this kind of global research and just this is what mental health looks like all across the world. And it's been a really exciting project to do. It's really exciting. One of the reasons it excites me so much is we teach uh, at Mental Health Global Network, we teach a mental health intervention training course. And when we go through the course and we're teaching people how to understand mental health and how to assist others who are struggling with mental health. And one of the questions, uh, the discussion questions we ask is what kind of mental health stigmas do we see in different cultures? And it's always been really interesting when we do these trainings, hearing the responses from people that came from very different cultures, different backgrounds, whose parents like yours, um, mm -hmm. you know, came from different countries originally and hearing what it's like to 
talk about mental health in their home, whether it's a very hush-hush situation or whether it's something that's an open conversation. So what have been some of your findings in terms of different stigmas that you see across different cultures? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the first thing, which obviously I think is like a no-dust statement, um, is that mental health is a conversation that's happening in every culture. Um, but obviously there are small voices and loud voices when we talk about mental health. But in its own way, I think every culture has talked about mental health and is talking about mental health. They might use a different term. They might use a different word. They might you know, describe a very specific experience, but that's them talking about mental health. And I just had a webinar with a bunch of people from Nigeria and they were like, oh, this is like the biggest like mental health thing that we've ever really had. But like, you know, the, I experienced this, like this is something I experienced. And so I think a lot of the research has been kind of reassuring the idea that mental health is real and mental health is not just like a like a young Gen Z you know problem. It's just an experience. And I think looking at mental health and physical health as similar you know uh, experiences, they come hand in hand. I think is a great way to approach it. Um, you have a lot of countries that are experiencing um, either war or a lot of just like political change or political unrest. And you see a lot of countries that are kind of coming back from political unrest, and they're talking about okay, what topics do we want to have? In the conversation as we you know rebuild our government structure and i think a lot of what i'm seeing is a deep-rooted political drive around mental health at the moment you see a lot of countries pushing for mental health and politics and mental health and policy and yes while it's a difficult conversation um depending on the region of the world that you live in i think it's very exciting to see people from like malaysia and like japan and again, Nigeria and Kenya pushing for this type of mental health policy reform within their own countries and cultures. Um, and I think that's very exciting. Uh, so yeah, I would say the number one thing is that mental health is happening everywhere, everywhere and mental health is everywhere. And it's a good thing, right? I have learned a lot about what mental health looks like as an individual. Like I've learned a lot of just about from like self-care habits, from the little things and different perspectives. Like I had a conversation with a guy from Sweden and he's like, you know, like, Something I just love is like, he's like, you just really need to go out more like, and just kind of like adding emphasis on nature and like adding, there's a lot of lenses people take mental health from. And I think each culture does a great job kind of specializing like how they approach it. And I think it's just been beautiful to see how different people talk about it. And it's very exciting to see that it's talking, it's being talked about everywhere. How are you connecting with these individuals from all over the world? Yeah, I mean, so for the most part, it's all over Zoom. Um, and it's been very difficult, especially the further I get into the research, um, it's been very difficult to get in contact with people to talk about mental health because I think the best way to say it, like the best, someone asked me a question once was those like, okay, like what are the countries where, you know, they, they don't talk about mental health a lot? And I'm like, well, it's the countries that I still haven't been able to interview at this point because there is a lot of stigma. And they think the lack of interviews in, from a specific region or specific kind of area in, in the world kind of shows how the mental health realm is like looked at. Because when a certain area or country doesn't want to talk about mental health, and if people are afraid to talk about mental health there, I think that gives a lot of insight itself. So while I've been connecting with them mainly online, um, there is such little like conversation that can happen been one of course because of the late language barrier and that's why I think it's important for me to work with these people that I'm interviewing and kind of helping them establish their own conversations within their own communities um, 
because like the last thing I want to do is come in and be like, okay, this is who I am. And I'm going to like save mental health for you. Like, that's not the case at all. Um, what we're doing is like having a conversation and encouraging them to have these conversations right outside of the zoom meeting and have it in person, have it with their family, have it with their friends and have it with their school. So while I've been connecting online, I think there's been a lot more connections happening offline within these countries once we were able to talk to them. It's amazing. How has being a founder impacted your mental health, whether it was back in high school when you were working with legislators and you had your nonprofit, or today with your YLG research initiative, um, being a founder and a CEO, it's a lot of responsibility. And I know in my experience, I've put a lot of pressure on myself and that pressure has risen to give me amazing opportunities and experiences. And it's also negatively impacted my mental health in, yeah. in certain ways. So what has your experience been? It's been very difficult. Like, I won't lie. Um, I think back in high school, I was a terrible high school student, as in I was just, I was so like, I was such a dreamer. So that the moment that we started this nonprofit, I was like, this is the only thing that matters. So I kind of neglected school. Um, and thankfully, when I applied to Cornell with like a really bad GPA and low SAT score, they saw the passion and they took that passion. They were like, yeah, like we'll accept you under the circumstance that you actually go to school. And I'm like, yeah, that's totally valid. So I actually had to take, <laughs> I, right. And I had to like take a summer quarter with them before my freshman year. And I had to like, like score well on, on their program there. And I was like, I'm capable of doing academics, but I was always so much more intrigued by kind of this hands-on work. And so now being in college at an institution, I definitely don't feel academically qualified for at times. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, how am I supposed to do it? Like, I look at this next semester and I have like 16 credits I have to take. And I'm like, wait a minute, like, I'm still a student. <laughs> and I always forget that. Um, it's definitely difficult. Like I said, like I, my friend and I, who was working in my team, with me when I was like back in high school she was like laughing she was like do you ever realize like the amount of work that we did back then I'm like yeah it's insane because now I feel like I can't even do half the amount of work I did back then um and I think also just like the leadership um that comes from running an organization is also very difficult because um I think what was difficult back in the high school was that this team was full of my friends and so these were people that I knew inside and out, right? These weren't just coworkers that, you know, I hired on a whim. These were people that I trusted. These were my friends. These were people I viewed as family. And so when they were like, oh, like, I don't know if I can get this thing in, I'm like, that's totally fine. And I would like take on that work. But now like coming into university when I'm running more like this research, you know, side of things and these workers like, right? Like the people I work with, it's a really small team. And we only call once in a while because it's like, right. A lot of the research is just interview based. Um, it's, it's like, you know, I don't know them as well as I know my friends, but I think that's a healthy boundary um, to have sometimes. And But I also want to be respectful. And so I think it's been a learning experience of what it means to be a leader within like a company or within a workforce versus a leader within your friends. Um, because like those are two different um, experiences, but it's definitely been difficult. And I think I'm definitely the person to go and overdrive and work more than and I should like sleep or like eat. And like, I have all my friends, especially at college. So they're like, what are you doing? Like, you need to take a break. Um, and so, yeah, like this past spring break, my, <clears throat> this past school year, I took the entire week off of work. I like logged out of my email and everything. And I was like, I definitely can't wait another five years to take a break. And so mm -hmm. I think I've been learning since then how to implement those breaks within 
within just my schedule. And so I think I've been better at being a leader to my own body and to my own mental health, but I think it's a definitely, it's a difficult experience. And I think it's something I'm really passionate about is like talking about the mental health of those working in this kind of public health realm. It's an interesting dynamic because people like you and, and like me who have this extreme passion for mental health and we want to get mental health education out there to as many people as possible but it is so easy to put your own mental health to the side. And then you kind of have to sit back and ask yourself, am I being, am I practicing what I preach? Exactly. And it, I mean, I'm proud of you for taking that week off and logging out of your email because Mm -hmm. time does fly. And it took me three years to take a week off of work when I first started my company. So And this year I took two weeks off and I still worked a little bit, but I traveled and um, for the most part sat back. And I'm telling you, it made me so much more productive. When I got back to work, I was so excited. I was so motivated and I was so refreshed. And I was kind of, I was the same way back when I was in college. I helped run an organization called Friends for Friends that was a mental health nonprofit that helped raise money for counseling services and mental health education on campus. And um, I did that. I was a fashion student and I, my friends were always like, you have to stop. Like you're going, going, going all the time. You have to stop. But I was like, they don't get it. They don't don't get it. They are not in my shoes. They don't know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, no, they're not in your shoes, but they see how hard you're working and they see your mental health deteriorating and they care about you. And sometimes you have to force yourself to really listen to people around you who support what you're doing, but also support you as an individual. Yeah. I think something that my friend told me once um, was this past winter break. And I was just really going through it because I was like, I'm, I, I think I was at my peak of like, just being exhausted and then we were on the phone together and like, she's like my best friend. She's like a sister to me. And she, she was like, Seika, like at the end of the day, like, I really don't care if you're going to be helping, if you're going to help all these people, if it comes at the price of your own well-being." She's like, right. I just don't care. And I, at first I was like offended. I was like, what do you mean you don't care? Right. Like, this is like, obviously like, I'm like, this is like what I love. Like, this is what I love doing. And she's like, yeah, but if you're like kind of dying over it, is it really worth it? And it was kind of like a self-check of like, just like what you said, like, am I practicing what I'm preaching? And I realized that like my friends mean everything to me. My family means everything to me. And they're the reason why I started all this work in the first place. And I was like, by being in this hyperdrive of like work and this passion and this drive, like I'm neglecting not only myself, but right, these relationships that I could be kind of like you know, working more on and just spending more time with. And I think I spend a lot of time with my friends, but I think it's different. Like intentional time is different than, you know, spending time with them in a study hall. Um, and I think that was a good wake up call because I'm like, yeah, if I'm throwing myself away um, with all the work that I'm doing because of, for whatever reason, and I'm neglecting my own well-being and my own happiness and my own just mental health, then what what a shame, right? Like that That is such a disservice to the people I've been working with and the people that are following my work. And so I think that was such a good wake up call. And then right, taking spring break off was super nice. And I think it's so important as people working in public health, I think of doctors all the time, you need to be able to take care of yourself in order, right, to take care of others and to help 
others. And I think that's a cheesy statement, but I think it's cheesy for a reason. Um, and so, yeah, it's extremely important, extremely difficult, but really important. It's true. You can't fill from an empty cup. Mm -hmm. You just can't, you can't give others what you don't have yourself. And we, you can try, you can only try for so long until you're completely depleted and that will negatively impact your work life, your personal life, your social life. For me, year two into the company, I got really, really depressed and I was in a very, very dark place. And at that point, it was like too little, too late, almost like Mm -hmm. I had let myself go so much because I was, you know, I'd founded this company. I needed to make money on the side. So I was Mm -hmm. bartending and I was waitressing and I was babysitting and tutoring and also working this job full time. And the combination of manual labor and intellectual labor, it mm-hmm. just completely wore me down. And I got to such a dark place and it was so hard to get out of. I did get out of it. And I think one of the reasons that I was able to pull myself out of that hole was because when I had a great support system and two, I was in the mental health space. So I knew that those options were available to me. I knew that therapy was a great option. I knew that psychiatry was a great option if it was something that I needed. Um, I knew that meditation was something that even when I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning, like I had to force myself to do. I used to put a meditation on YouTube and sit on the floor in the shower in the dark with all the lights off and just sit there and force myself to go through it. And eventually I was able to come out of it. But if you think about all the people that don't have the education that you and I have, that don't have the Mm -hmm. background or the understanding, or even the belief that you can pull yourself out of this space, that's why suicide rates are so high because people feel like they're hitting a dead end. So I'm glad we're having this conversation Mm -hmm. because I think it's a great way for you and I to hold ourselves accountable just in being here and speaking about it on this podcast. Uh, Mm -hmm. I know I constantly have to work on holding myself accountable and this has been a good check-in for me. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. (laughs) Yeah. I like, I'm like scheduling out my next semester and I was like on FaceTime with one of my friends and she just graduated and she was like, so like, tell me what your schedule looks like next semester. And I was like telling her, and then I was telling her all the projects that I was working on and like what I'm expecting and hoping for YLG. And then she's like, Sika, you're doing it again. I'm like, you're right. Like it's it's so difficult because I think it's so easy to fall into habit with it again. But like you said, like we're the people who know the resources, we're the people who know kind of just how this field looks like and what it works. And I think by kind of right utilizing the resources that we're promoting and we're talking about is such a is such a great way to spread awareness about them and such a great way to talk about them. And I, I, in in the process of me learning to take, take time for myself, I'm like, you know, I've always talked about a lot of these resources, but I haven't ever really used them before. And I think that's been a good experience for me of like, okay, this is what this kind of process looks like. Like, this is how talking to a counselor in school looks like. Like, this is what, you know, you know, just like kind of understanding what the process really, really is. Um, and I think that's been a good experience, both for me as an individual and then right, both with me as a leader in mental health. Absolutely. Has your university uh, worked with you at all with this project you're working on or is it mostly something that you do outside of school? 
It's mostly something I do outside of school. Um, it's been very difficult for me because I think like, Cornell is such a big institution. Um, and I'm not talking about like the size of the campus, but like the institution itself as like a university. And it's been difficult to just get like in touch with a, like a specific person in terms of like higher education from Cornell that is like has the time and the availability to work with me. But I think something that's been really helpful that a lot of Cornell professors have done so far is like being really accommodating. Like, right, this university accepts people not just based on your grades and your GPA, but off of your passion. And so every single semester where I've like sat down with my professors and I was like, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is what it looks like. They get so excited. And they're like, oh, absolutely. If you, if you need an extension, let me know. Like, if you have any questions about anything, let me know. Like, this is my office hours. Like, you can come in if you miss class one day. So I think that's been the way I think it has been really helpful is that the people that I talk to at college are really receptive of the work that I'm doing. And I think that's like the reassuring part. So while like they may not be working hands-on with me in the research, I think they're supporting me as a student, um, giving me a lot of opportunities to, you know, still attend this university, still go to class and still learn. And I think that is a beautiful thing is that Cornell looks at you as a person, not at you as like a CEO or as a founder. I think that's like a really human experience and a really unique experience is that um, like, of course, I would love to like work more in terms of research with Cornell, but I think I'm glad that because it kind of feels like a home, like I feel like I can go home there like that. I'm like, oh, I know I'm supported by the professors and workers of this institution. I know that they are helping me as much as I can as a student, as a person. And I think I really appreciate that approach instead, because I think it's given me a, a good you know, space to breathe. I'm like, okay, like this is, this is good. Like my professors understand, my TAs understand, and um, they're honestly interested about what I'm doing and they, they're here to help me as a student and as a worker. And so I, I really appreciate that. That's monumental. That makes such mm-hmm. a difference to have a support system in your professors and yeah. for to have them support something that you're working on that you're so passionate about is is really incredible. I did not have that experience in college, <laughs> but I had an I had an interesting experience in college because I was in fashion school and my professors right. in the fashion program were very unsupportive. They didn't like if you had to go to therapy or the counseling center or whatever it was, they would not believe you. They would tell you that you were lying. They would make your counsel, your therapist write them notes. And then they would still decipher whether or not they wanted to excuse that. Um, and most of the time they didn't. And, but then on the other end, I went to the university of Delaware and on the other mm-hmm. end, we had um, administration that was really supporting us. And so we had, a support system in the administration and the counseling center, but which was huge in terms of being able to get support on campus for the events that we were running. It was an on-campus community. So that's why there was more involvement from the school. Um, But not having that support from my professors really broke me down a lot of the time. And it really made it difficult to manage um, both schoolwork and these projects. So I think to any professor that ends up <laughs> listening to this podcast, they yeah. should take your professors and, as an example, because the difference it makes is just huge. So I'm really happy for you that you have had that experience. Yeah, it's been really nice. It's been really beneficial. Um, of course, like they still want me to attend class. And of course, like I'm not like trying to skip every single period, but I think of course. what's been right. I think what's been nice though, is like that kind of understanding of like, 
they want to help the students do what the students want to do right like they're like I remember I was kind of nervous about starting another initiative in college and then my dean of administration for my university was like is this not what we like accepted you on like we accepted you on the basis that you have this passion like the last thing they want to do is be the limit in that and I think that was a beautiful thing to hear was that like of course right like they they want to see students do what students care about and what students love and I think that's been I've definitely felt that experience within my time at Cornell that's absolutely beautiful you're right there's beautiful is the perfect perfect way to frame it Mm -hmm. well it has been so so wonderful having this conversation with you today and if there's one thing that you would recommend to someone who's interested in starting a program um, whether it be in mental health or something else that they're passionate about what advice would you give I guess kind of two things one on par of the conversation that we we kind of just had um taking time to recognize right your inner self right the things that you value the things that you love and your kind of reason why right spending time thinking about yourself um, I think helps you set up whatever you want to produce and whatever kind of action you want action item you want to see. And so I think that's the number one thing for me is that I had to recognize what I valued. I had to recognize what I loved. I had to recognize why I loved it. Um, and I think that has helped me have a clear focus and have a clear passion and a clear goal and what I want to see accomplished. But the second thing that's easy to have at the end of the day, you need to have the initiative to put the first foot out there, right? Um, so I think what I would always say is contact the people you want to contact, always reach out to the people you can reach out to. Um, and m- more people are willing to hear from you than you think. Um, I, I emailed every single state legislator and senator, and yes, while I got one reply, that changed my life. And I think it's better to give it your all than to give it nothing. And so just put in the effort for a little bit and, and try and reach out to the people you can reach out to and look at the circles around you, look at your teachers, look at your school, look at your community and do whatever you can to reach out. And I guarantee you someone out there will want to help you and people out there do want to help you. And that's the best thing I can say. Uh, That's great advice. Finding that self-care and then finding that first step and Mm -hmm. having the courage to get started. Well, thank you so much, Seika. This has been amazing, amazing. You are such a passionate advocate and so brilliant and well-spoken and it's just been a real honor to have you on our show today so thank you so much for being here thank you so much for having me i loved it absolutely this is brains out loud and we will see you at the next episode thanks for listening